Pasa Mufasa. Welcome to the Mycopreneur Podcast. This is a podcast about people solving problems with mushrooms. I'm your host, Dennis Walker. Let's get down to business. Okay, Pasa Mufasa, we've got Charles McBride in the house today, co-founder of Mission Kharkiv and creative consultant. Welcome to the Mycopreneur Podcast. How are you doing today, Charles? Thanks, man. I'm, I'm doing well. I'm alive, and that's that's what matters. There's a, a nice glow to him right now for anyone you know who's listening. I've been wanting to get you on the podcast for a while to talk about your experience on the front lines and Ukraine, and it's something I've been following for a while. Your your activism and humanitarian activism with Mission Kharkiv, which you can explain shortly what that is. And I would just love to hear from you. What initially prompted you to uproot your very comfortable life in Los Angeles? Angeles and you know the United States and to fly halfway around the world to an active theater of war and put yourself in the path of of direct fire to support the people of Ukraine what motivated you to do that and can you talk a little bit about your experience over there yeah so that makes it sound very grand um <laughs> but I think in in many ways it was a very simple decision I have five years of sort of nonprofit humanitarian fundraising kind of experience in my background. And I have, you know, my, my undergrad degree is in history. I spent a lot of time studying the Soviet Union and post-Soviet states. And I, I don't like I don't like bullies. <laughs> and so when this thing kicked off, it seemed to be, I mean, I understood the context of that. A lot of people didn't really ne- necessarily realize this, but this is, it was potentially going to be the most significant event of our lifetimes, even more than COVID. So there was a part of me that didn't want to miss that, uh, and, I, and that I'm willing to admit that that's an egoic thing. But there was another part of me that really felt like I, I would have been making a huge mistake if I didn't go over and help. So I, I, I did. I had no intention of fighting or anything like that, but I did want to see if I could bring some of my digital marketing fundraising experience to kind of create a, a Western-facing humanitarian endeavor that would that would sort of force Americans and Brits and, 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 and the like to, to look at the conflict through the eyes of someone who they know, and in doing so to hopefully generate some empathy for the people there. And then sort of the broader humanitarian effort that I've been involved in since then came, came out of that. But uh, it was a decision I had to make pretty quickly, and I didn't tell a lot of people because I understood the risks, and I knew a lot of people would talk, try and talk me out of it. But yeah, just kind of, it, it felt like a thing that I had to do. So I went over and did it. Yeah. And I spent quite a bit of time studying post-Soviet economies and post-Soviet states as well, and have a background hosting foreign exchange students, a lot of whom came from former Soviet states and actually lived through the fall of the Soviet Union. So I grew up hearing about these very different perspectives. And now the digital media production that I do also overlaps with some of that producing content in partnership with Occidental College and you know they've got uh, I've got a good friend who's a professor there that specifically instructs or specifically teaches about post-Soviet economies and he just wrote a book earlier this year about kleptocracy and about the Russian government and all of that research has become so vital and so so relevant now that there's an active theater of war over there and you know the whole international media and everyone over here is talking about Putin. So it's something I've been following very closely. And I've also been over to Ukraine, as I mentioned, in 2012. So I was there right before 
Russia re-annexed Crimea and I actually got to go visit Crimea when it was still part of a, of Ukraine and had an extraordinary, extraordinary experience there. It felt like one of those parts of the world that a lot of people just never hear about over here. And it's truly beautiful. The Black Sea and the coastline. And I was there in Kiev for the Euro Cup. So I feel like I do have a strong connection insofar as, you know, Californians have a connection to Ukraine. So yeah, I've been following it closely. Yeah, so I, I want to hear about your perspective of having been over there and been actively involved in this theater of war, and then you come back, and now it feels like the United States and a lot of global media have largely kind of moved on. Like it feels like for a while the ele- you know the news cycle was pro- predominantly focused on Ukraine, and now there's so many other things going on. I don't hear anyone talking about it anymore, and it's almost like it's still going on. This is still a very active war zone. But it's no longer as culturally relevant over here. So do you have any perspective about what's that like? Do you feel like, you know, people are sort of missing the bigger picture of what's going on these days? I think people are for a variety of reasons. First of all, I mean, people get, you know, fatigue about a a particular subject being talked about too long, especially if they don't have sort of an intimate connection there. I provided an intimate connection to a lot of people while I was over there because they were concerned about my safety and following along on my Instagram and that sort of stuff. And that was kind of the point because, frankly, I didn't really expect American attention on Ukraine to last as long as it did, given how fast our news cycle moves. And so part of my intention was, well, if I'm over there, at least people will care for as long as I'm over there. Uh, but, But truthfully, I mean... After a couple of weeks was when the Chris Rock slap happened at the Oscars. And literally, it, we all talked about while we were over there how that marked like the departure point where people just, it's kind of like how people stopped talking about COVID in like, like right after the big Omicron wave. That just was the moment where everyone's kind of, it was no longer front page, front page news. It was like second or third page news. People, the funding started to dry up for all the NGOs. You know, everyone, people started going home. People realized that they couldn't, like, raise clout from it anymore. There was a lot of people who were trying to do that. And it just became a much more kind of professional endeavor of, like, if people were still there and still working, it was because they were super invested in the the people. Uh, and maybe they weren't even really invested in the people at first, but now they were. And so everyone sort of joined for- forces to to work with the limited resources and time that they, they now had um, now that like the attention in the pockets of the West were no longer focused on Ukraine. So yeah, we just, you know, we made it work and nine months later, we're still going strong. Um, We just understand that we're, we're fighting a different kind of, of battle with this sort of thing. But yeah, in terms of Americans missing out the broader picture, I do really think that they don't necessarily understand. They see all this money going to Ukraine. They don't really understand what they're getting for it. You know, all the news coming out of Ukraine seems to be great. And part of that is because Ukraine has a very effective, like, stamping down on any sort of negative propaganda at this point. So you don't hear about the fact that, like, the country is basically can't can't heat homes and can't light cities. The electric grids are down. People are unable to heat their dwellings. Literally, Kiev just essentially told two million residents that they weren't going to be able to host them during the winter. And so they're trying to to organize a mass exodus out of the capital city of Ukraine to send these people, which means, you know, all those generous Polish and Romanian and Lithuanian people at the beginning are going to have to accept new waves of, of refugees, not because of airstrikes, but because of freezing cold temperatures. And that's going to be a test on their generosity. So, uh, and, and then, you know, a lot of organizations on the front line are sort of running low on resources 
there's huge military victories, but you know, the civilian population is still suffering quite a bit and it's going to be years before that, that entire country sort of gets back to what we would consider to be normal. So those are the things that don't really make it into the headlines when you're saying like, oh, new Ukrainian city liberated. That's, that's great news. It's good to see that, but it's also, there, there are dark aspects to it as well. I think this winter is going to be very tough. Yeah, it's a huge country. I don't know how many people really recognize that, but I've taken an overnight train from Kiev to Sevastopol or Sebastopol, Sebastopol, and it was like 18 hours of just straight up countryside going by. And it's an absolutely massive area. So that's something to take into account for sure. And, and you know, it's, it's got a loaded history there too, being a, a member of the former Soviet Union. And But I think that, you know, there's a lot going on there that just doesn't really translate to a lot of what Americans are, are looking at, right? Like when we went, the, the last war in my lifetime was when we invaded uh, Iraq, which actually was just out there this year, as you probably saw. And the, the fundamental differences between that and this conflict that I see is that one very much was a response to an attack on American soil, or that's the way that it was framed. And there was this wave of pa patriotism, right, about like, we have to go, you know, depose uh, Saddam Hussein and bin Laden in a separate theater, et cetera, et cetera. And this, I think for a lot of people was like, hey, we have so many problems going on at home. Why are we going to focus so much attention over there? And one other thing I wanted to mention is this was the first war that was fought on social media that I've seen where like you'd be scrolling through TikTok and it's like, I see my friend, you know, I see an influencer and then boom, it's a live theater of war over in Ukraine. And that was a phenomenon to witness. And of course, there was a lot of fake news too, right? There was a lot of misinformation being peddled out there. There were a lot of like video games that people were posting clips of these ultra realistic PlayStation games and saying, oh, this was an airstrike that just happened. And it became so impossible to track a lot of what was actually happening because you know, you're bombarded with these different visuals. And you say, is that real? Oh, that, that footage is actually from 2016 from a military drill. Yeah, so I wonder if you have any perspective about that, if that's something you dealt with is like the misinformation and the propaganda. It's funny, that's actually kind of a huge reason I went over there. So on the day of the invasion, I had been working on an infographic talking about the geopolitical situation. And I was one of a few people who actually thought the Russians were going to invade. Like I had army intelligence officers telling me like, no, there's no way Putin's going to do it. And I was kind of like, I kind of feel like he is. So anyway, I prepared this infographic. And the point of the infographic was to guide people away from misinformation about the war particularly Russian disinformation. Not a lot of people know that Russia operates several state-owned media apparatuses, which are like cleverly hidden in other sort of media apparatuses. And they create memes and disinformation and stuff. And it's basically, you know, you'll have super right-wing ones and super left-wing ones and, you know, like Ruptly TV or Redfish Media or, you know, RT, which is like kind of the Russian, major Russian propaganda network. A lot of those ended up getting banned right after the invasion from the United States, which I think is good because they literally are state organs of state power. It, and But anyway, a lot of people don't know that. A lot of people were just passing around random stuff. A lot of leftists were like, oh, why, why are we invading Ukraine? Russia's, you know, they've been fight, killing people in Donbass and just like echoing Russian propaganda. So I, I created a list of journalists and like news outlets that people should totally avoid and call out if people were like, you know, retweeting them. And then some people that people should pay attention to. And mostly I pointed people towards open source intelligence lists on Twitter and people who are aggregating that. Groups like Bellingcat, journalists like Jake Hanrahan from Popular Front, basically independent media that's not particularly pushing an agenda. I mean, everybody has an agenda. But yeah, that was a huge aspect. And then I was kind of like, all right, you know, actually, people are still going to 
have trouble with this. So maybe if I go over there, you know, interview people on the ground and show sort of my perspective on this, they'll find it, find it interesting. So that was definitely a huge part of it for sure. Yeah. You know, now that you're back over here, I know that you're still very actively involved in raising funds with Mission Kharkiv, which we'll link to the episode notes. But something we've also talked about to shift gears a little bit is this new age wave of spirituality and, you know, entirely separate topic than Ukraine, but also something that's very relevant right now is this sense of, you know, both of us, as my understanding, come from a very conservative religious background where you were raised in the church. I was raised in the church. And now, you know, we went through the cycle where, you know, you kind of explore and you, you go through a process of self-development you question the dogma of religion, et cetera. But now all of a sudden spirituality and new age spirituality and psychedelics has kind of like superseded a lot of, you know, traditional religion as like the new American religion. And it's fascinating to see, you know, all of these people who previously maybe identified as agnostic or atheist or whatever now have this like very forward sense of spirituality. So that's something I wanted to dive into with you while I have it. Is that something that you've noticed? And what are some of your perspectives coming from a very dogmatic, conservative, traditional religious background and now suddenly, you know, living in a place where you're surrounded by new age spirituality? Yeah, I mean, not to be not to be crass about it, but I think it's really kind of dumb. Like I I I all have always sort of mistrusted New Ageism, the New Age spirituality, in terms of like I don't know. This is I don't want this to sound misogynistic. I call it white girl witchcraft, which I probably shouldn't. But like people people who you know everything is about astrology or the enneagram or you know some sort of combination of like pseudoscientific New Age mumbo which is completely stripped from the context that it emerged from. Like, people, people quoting Alan Watts without understanding that Alan Watts was an incredibly influential Anglican, you know, seminarian and, and theologian for years before he was a New Age teacher. Or Terence McKenna, but not understanding Terence McKenna's, you know, intellectual formation. And even, ter- but, but, but this goes farther, but I think a lot of people have negative experiences with sort of dogmatic religious upbringings, whether it's Mormonism or fundamentalist Christianity, fundamentalist evangelicalism, fundamentalist Catholicism, and they don't actually have a, a deep appreciation for some of the more mystical origins of their faith traditions. I don't know so much about Mormonism, but like certainly Christianity, Catholicism, there's a deep and rich spiritual tradition that's very, there's a lot of variety to it. And I think that people don't really understand that and they want to skip right over to like kind of a, a new age mumbo, which is cleverly very divorced from any sort of social ethic. So much of this new age stuff is hyper individualistic. It's all about you and your ego and getting over your ego and sort of escaping from from the reality of, of everything around you, which I find quite troubling. I've, I've been reading a lot of Murray Bookchin recently, and he talks a lot about kind of how so much of this sort of anti-religious sentiment is coming into a a new age religious appreciation of the oneness of everything. And they just want to collapse all categories into a single unifying theme, you know, whether it's Gaia or whatever, but sort of an irrational spiritualism, which Bookchin talks about as being very dangerous because those are the, those are the perfect preconditions for fascism. At least that's what they were in Italy and in Germany, kind of like a mystic, irrational spiritualism which which was anti-reason. And so I think that people, I'm encouraged to see people experimenting, particularly people who are hurt by the church 
or you know whatever their upbringing fundamentalist upbringing was i've encouraged to see them experimenting with various religious forms and spiritual forms but i think they need to do that in a very responsible way and i think they shouldn't be afraid to look into some of the more compelling mystical origins of their own faiths and 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 maybe a little bit farther back in the mystical tradition because there's a lot of chaff there's a lot of wheat there but there's a lot of chaff and i think it's troubling to me to see people just like throw themselves into mysticism, you know, or new age mysticism without a proper understanding of where that fits in the broader history of religion and spirituality. Sorry, that was kind of long-winded. No, that was perfect. Uh, you're actually helping me frame my next question. And I'm, I'm, I spent a lot of time thinking about the role of social media and amplifying a lot of the tropes that are out there in society right now. And that's what my background is in media studies. At the time, I chose to study media because I really liked the people that were in the program at my university. And that's what I gravitated towards. I said, I really like these people. So I switched majors. You know, I started off as an English major and then an environmental studies major. And then my freshman year for the third time, I still managed to graduate in four years, so I'm very proud of that. But I switched to media studies because of the people. I was like, you people are awesome. And then I started growing into it and started realizing, wow, like media really controls the way that people think about everything. The storytellers in a culture, they control the society and the dominant narratives that are being peddled out and reinforced are the way, you know, we're gonna internalize them and that's what's gonna guide our society. So now that social media has emerged, which I was there at the first wave of it, I remember getting my first Facebook and it was like barely, you know, 2007 and like, you know, nobody I knew had a Facebook or a Twitter, YouTube was brand new. I saw this huge reason for optimism. And I think we saw early on some tremendous applications for social media, right? Like with the Jasmine revolution and with the Middle East, like I was directly involved in supporting that and you know, going to protests in San Francisco. I have friends who are based in Egypt and things like that. So that was kind of the first wave of saying, wow, this is a really powerful tool. What I never understood was the dark side of how that tool could actually be weaponized against people, which we started to see in 2016, really, for the first time that I'm aware of, right? With, you know, and now we're in this sort of post-truth reality where like you can openly lie, and as long as you double down on the lie, people are gonna believe it. And I know that this is a well, well played tactic of a lot of authoritarian regimes is to just bombard people with disinformation. Well, social media actually becomes a breeding ground for that. So it's something that, you know, I spend a lot of time thinking about your role. You know, you said you're not a journalist, but I, I think you have a platform that you cover a lot of very important topics in, in great detail and depth. So I just want to know, like, where do you see your role with your platform right now and this emergent landscape of, you know, uh, tremendous political tension, tremendous social upheaval, disinformation, just all kinds of chaos that's going on. Where do you see your role and your platform as a new media photojournalist and journalist these days? So that's an interesting question. I think it's something where I, I have a lot of trouble thinking about my responsibility as a creator now that I've grown this large platform. And Ukraine was the first time that I really seriously started to think about that because, I mean, I, I intersperse like thoughtful reflections on social issues with just insane memes and like skits posting and like making references to dune and the lord of the rings and stuff in just in, in that's targeted towards like a hyper niche audience and it just generally confuses a lot of people so i don't think i'm the best in terms of like how to responsibly use your platform because i'm definitely working with that as well i like to go on just like weird rants about stuff but i've been thinking about that more and more it's like if 
recently, like a lot of people have been like, I seriously tune into your stuff as a way to navigate all of these social issues. And I think about that and say, okay, well, well, maybe I should be more careful with that. <laughs> and I think we all should be more careful with that. Um, in, but it, I totally agree with you in terms of the, yeah, it becomes a breeding ground for authoritarianism, for fascism, for misinformation. And I think that totally extends to the spiritual realm as well. You have a lot of people who are taking, you know, these spiritual ideas and uh, they're repackaging them to run multi-level marketing schemes and that sort of thing and divorcing them completely from the ideas that started them. And, and, and we have to admit, especially when we're talking about psychedelics, that so much of this conversation is highly imperialistic. It's very colonial. It, it involves a bunch of white dudes going down to Mexico in the 1950s finding out about psilocybin mushrooms and then spreading that awareness using the native origins of the plants like like you know in mescaline and, and magic mushrooms as as a mystical backdrop for what they were doing and then peddling an entirely new narrative and we're seeing that all happen again you know we're having a conversation about psychedelics which is not really involving indigenous people and i think that's that's quite damaging especially when you're talking about the legality of these things and I think that's something you purloin really well on in your media is like you, you are so dialed into this conversation in a way that most people aren't, that you can make these just tremendous jokes and memes about these people that I think resonate with very few people, but I'm certainly one of the people they resonate with. Yeah, that's the goal. I mean, it was really a response to, to demand where people say, you need to name this and dive into this more. But it's something that comes naturally to me. And I think part of that is I've been around these communities for a long time by virtue of getting interested and involved with psychedelics at a fairly young age. And then reading all the literature, reading the Don Juans and the Terrence McKenna's and this and that. And now that psychedelics have become in vogue, you know, I've lived in L.A., I've lived in San Francisco. I've been around a lot of these characters that's like they just discovered it and now they're leading ceremonies. Right. And now it's like it becomes a very like, yeah, it, it, they integrate it with their own ego and it ends up just amplifying the ego. And that is, you know, a very important conversation. But one thing I've heard from from feedback is people say it for, for whatever reason, you know, when a white person names it. It has, you know, more people listen, which is kind of fucked up. But it's like the indigenous communities have been saying this for a long time and everyone's just like, yeah, whatever. But then it's like when a white person does it and you kind of like make fun of yourself, other people can see like, oh, man, I look like an idiot. And that's kind of my goal is just to be like, I'm just going to make fun of myself. You know, I'm going to I'm going to put myself in there and, you know, because I'll never punch down. But like I can make fun of myself all day. It's really easy to do. Right. Is that That's kind of the idea. And it's hugely self-aware because like you run a podcast about psychedelics as a white dude you know like it, and i'm the same way like i've been reading all these books and trying to educate people and on psychedelics and all that sort of stuff and i do that from a religious studies background i mean you know actually i think this is the first time i've publicly admitted this on any platform but like i utilize psychedelics as a form of spiritual practice i integrate it into and i do that in the context of what i believe is a long tradition of uh, use of entheogens in Western religion, um, which I still consider myself an adherent of Western religion to a degree. And not a lot of people know about that history. But it, it's funny because, yeah, you have to make fun of yourself because that's that's the source. Like these things have been hugely beneficial to me, but I have to admit, none of this knowledge would exist without indigenous tribes holding on to it for a very long time. And then it being rediscovered by like Gordon Wasson and all these guys in the 1950s. So yeah, I mean, the self-awareness is hugely key because 
we both have probably seen this be highly beneficial in our lives, but we understand that we ourselves are probably part of the problem. <laughs> yeah, it's a much broader conversation and it's one that the stakes are getting raised. You know, there's there's legislation actively being passed to roll out a medicalized model of psychedelics. And I, through whatever strange twist of fate, have ended up at the table with some of these big players and getting invited into their circles and hearing the conversations. And it's something that, you know, when you mentioned about what do you do with your platform, it's kind of like all of a sudden this is here where like people view you as a thought leader on certain subjects and like increasingly so. Right. It's just like I'm a thought leader for like parading around in a thong on a beach, you know, making fun of TikTok creators like for whatever reason. But I recognize like, OK, what's our responsibility here? Like, I don't want to lose sight of having fun. And, if, you know, sometimes I'll throw stuff out there literally just to be like, don't take me so seriously. Like, uh, yeah, I want you, if you value my perspective, I'm honored and I'll do everything in my power and due diligence to try to be as informed and uh, open minded and nuanced as possible. But also like you have to understand like we're going to make mistakes like this. There's no there's not necessarily like a manual or like a survival guide for how to navigate these waters. And that's something I've I've learned a lot with like looking at other people as I realize like we have to have empathy for them, because even if someone there's someone you totally disagree with, that person is capable of change. You know, they might have a totally different perspective a year from now. Right. And if, if we're just going to go and yell at each other and create this divisiveness, like I, I don't think that's going to translate to building bridges and being solution oriented. So that's my my one little bit I just wanted to drop there is like there might be someone who has a view that you totally disagree with. You know, they have a whole backstory, too, that we don't understand. So, like, how can we meet them where they're at? present our side of the story without amplifying and being without being aggressive about it and without turning them off. Because if you, you start yelling at someone, you kind of both lost the argument right there, in my opinion. And it's also, you need to deeply appreciate that people are different levels with this. You know, when I first started it, it was funny, my, my sort of guide through this stuff was, he was like, don't be evangelical about it. Because everyone is at sort of a different stage with this stuff in terms of how they view it as like, drugs, or as illegal, or as you know, well, this is something that should be reserved for indigenous communities, or this is something that should be medicalized and given to everyone, or this is the miracle pill. He said, just like, just research and read and learn more. And I'm very grateful that I sort of did that for two years before like being willing to talk about any of this stuff, because I feel like if I had gone on this podcast two years ago and been like, man, this is the future. We just got to turn everybody on, you know, like, turn on, drop out, you know, tap, tune in, drop out, like that sort of thing. And I think that we would repeat a lot of mistakes that were happening in the 1960s and stuff that sent everybody into a tizzy. And we lost 40, 50 years of psychedelic research as a result. So I think just being careful and pointing people towards, I mean, it's just, it's the same with the climate conversation. Just like, just take your, take your cues from the indigenous communities, because they're the ones who have this figured out and have been doing it for years and years and years and years. Um, there's a conversation to be had about the role of the pharmaceutical industry in this. I think it could be valuable for, for especially for like veterans, um, people struggling with PTSD. I understand that needs to happen in a safe environment and, and that sort of thing. I'm also deeply concerned about, you know, a few pharmaceutical companies who appear as the villains in most stories getting to gatekeep access to, to another natural gift, you know, especially if that means robbing access from indigenous communities who have incorporated in their religious ceremonies for centuries. That's why I, I've been involved in the decriminalized movement, like here in LA and then some other places. And they tend to be very skeptical about like corporate backed efforts 
to decriminalize because those are usually come with strong caveats that a few companies are going to get to police um, how this becomes legal, how this becomes accessible. Yeah, that's something that is going to blow up and it's blowing up right now. I've just been made aware very recently of some caveats or some changes to the framework of the psilocybin initiative that's being rolled out in Oregon, Oregon that involves data collection and like forced data collection. And I've seen some letters that have, you know people have forwarded me of people that were invested in the space and we're going to run uh, training programs and then they're backing out because it essentially becomes too narrow of a funnel for who's able to, you know, uh, it's almost like an 11th hour bait and switch, if you will. Like you get the language approved, you get everyone on board, and then all of a sudden once the you know momentum has built up to a point where it's impossible to stop, you switch in something that nobody really agreed to. And that's something I've been I've been navigating, you know, having sat down and interviewed some of these CEOs of these large pharma companies. If you had asked me two years ago, you know, I, I still am going to clown on them. I'm still going to make fun of them these days. But like I have to I'm recognizing now, like this is how it's going to be rolled out. Is it the right way? Very debatable, very debatable. But I will say that like the political machinery, the regulation, the commercialization and the organization and resources on the side of the medicalized model are going to make it so, so difficult in our current global hyper consumerist oriented and, you know, money motivated status quo to really fight against them. So, you know, I don't have the answers here, but that's something I'm actively navigating right now is like, is it truly an us versus them? Is there room for some kind of mediation where we get, you know, these large, you know, I asked the CEO of one of these major companies, you know, what kind of reciprocity initiatives are you involved with? And he flat out said, like, we're not focused on that. Like, we need to make profits for our shareholders. And, you, you know, at least he was unabashed about it. At least he didn't try to, you know, greenwash or whitewash it or whatever. But I just think, you know, these are really important discussions. And uh, my rally cry to people is like, have empathy and learn as much as you can about, quote, the other side. Sit down and talk to them. You know, pay attention. Because what I noticed is we just have echo chambers. You know, you have people who say, Oh, those people are wrong. And like, they might be wrong about a lot of things, but maybe it's a more nuanced conversation than a lot of people are prepared to have at this moment. So what's the best thing we can do? Have open conversations, open dialogues, be transparent and, you know, be as educated as we can and up to speed. Yeah. And, you know, there, there is a, and there's like the, the Western psychological canon and literature and everything we've built around this in terms of therapy and everything. I think that that is a place for a medicalized model of psychedelics to be introduced, you know, as a supplement to forms of psychological healing, which appear in sort of the Western tradition. And I'm, I'm pretty pro Western medicine, which I think is something you, when you're in this space, you encounter a lot of people who are like, no, you know, like everything that the, 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 I'm like, no, like I'm, I'm, I'm vaccinated. And I, I'm currently on a course of antibiotics. Like, I, I think a lot of this stuff is valuable. And a lot of that comes from a kind of Aristotelian model of 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 digging into these things being like okay well what can we incorporate can we add this onto this and i think that's certainly valuable i also think it's important to call a spade a spade sometimes and understand that these pharmaceutical companies are in here for shareholder profit and in doing so you could miss significant uh nuances for how this conversation should play out um and 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 you could fail to recognize a power dynamic at play 
where the people who already have their hands in all the pockets that make a lot of difference um, will be dictating sort of how this gets rolled out. That's a really, really insightful analysis right there. I'm looking forward to more of it. And I really appreciate this conversation. Charles, thank you so much for coming on the Micropreneur podcast and to be continued, my friend. Absolutely, man. Great to be on and love the work that you're doing. And that is a wrap. Thank you for sticking around to the bitter end. It's very sweet of you to commit so thoroughly. Don't be a stranger. Let me know what you thought of this episode. And please consider checking out the substantial backlog while you're at it. You can reach out to me via email, mycopreneur at gmail.com. Or hit me on any of the numerous social platforms that I'm currently active on. At Micopreneur Podcast is the handle on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you all very much for sticking around. Have a wonderful day. I'll see you back here next week on the Micopreneur Podcast.